Hi, thanks for listening to this podcast. Today we're going to be talking about positive psychology with a focus on emotional intelligence. <clears throat> now, as ever, there is an accompanying PowerPoint for this podcast, which is available on request at dmcdonald at btg-secondary.lambeth.sch.uk. So, as I said, we're looking at positive psychology. This is primarily for my own A-level students who have been very briefly introduced to the con- uh, to the idea of positive psychology, but I wanted to give them a bit more of an understanding and context about it. But going forward, the next few podcasts related to this are going to focus on different aspects of positive psychology, such as well-being, uh, resilience, and goal-setting. Now, to begin with, as anybody who's familiar with my other podcasts, I do like to start with defining the key terms that we're looking at. So if we're looking at positive psychology, I'm going to use the definition of one of the founding members of the movement. That's a man called Martin Seligman. Now, I use the phrase movement rather than approach because I think that positive psychology actually takes in a combination of different approaches. Anyway, here is the definition that Martin Seligman gives us. He says it's a scientific study of optimum human functioning that aims to promote and discover the factors that allow humans and communities to thrive. So our key phrases within there would be scientific study. This is a very research-driven area of psychology. Uh, They like to find empirical evidence to support the aspects of optimal human functioning, people living at their best, that they want to promote in terms of helping individuals and communities to get better. Now, it's very, it's a relatively new area of psychology, and I think it contrasts with what traditionally would have been called the disease model within psychology, where there's a focus on dysfunction, mental illness, people having problems. And it looks instead at what makes some people more resistant to those problems or dysfunctions in the first place, or even when they do befall them, what gives them more of a capacity to recover? A very simple way of looking at it is if we take an imaginary scale, of maybe negative 10 to positive 10, a disease model would maybe take somebody who was at negative 8 and hope to take them towards negative 2. So they're making them better. Whereas... They're still making people better with positive psychology, but they'd like to think of taking somebody from positive two to positive eight. So there are three levels that we can consider positive psychology at. The first is kind of subjective, personal experience level of feelings that would maybe be associated with this, such as contentment and well-being, optimism. You know, these ideas of feeling good. It's not going as far as doing good yet, but it's the, the things that make people feel good about themselves. The individual level or the personal characteristics that these subjective states can lead to, such as courage, resilience, creativity, imagination, love, compassion, to name but a few. And then when these individuals take these characteristics and put them to play at a group or community level, they foster ideas of uh, social responsibility, work ethic, aspirations for society, for the future, looking to the other things I'm sure we'd all see would be pro-social behaviours which would promote social cohesion. So to focus on where this has been encountered from my own students, first of all, the first place we came across this was with a lady called Marie Yehuda's 
criteria for ideal mental health. She identified six of these, which are often misinterpreted as being unrealistic. It's because they're part of a framework for identifying mental illness. And she thought to do that, it would be good to identify mental health first. And then it's called the deviation from ideal mental health. So she would be measuring mental illness by how far people were away from these six indicators for perfect psychological well-being, or as she calls it, ideal mental health. So a brief look through these, we can see the first one would be positive self-attitudes. And the idea, not of just people thinking the most of themselves, having an unrealistic view of their talents, it's a balance. It's the idea of looking at a balance between self-acceptance, so looking at things like the needs that we have, things that we could improve, and self-esteem, you know, the celebration of our own talents, our own strengths. So having the balance between the two of them, not thinking too much of yourself, but also at the same time not putting yourself down too much. Going on from this, there's an accurate perception of reality, which at the extreme deviation would be the psychotic person who has hallucinations, delusions. But even in more mild deviations, we can see somebody with phobia or social anxiety maybe sees the um, social interaction or the phobic stimulus as being an exaggerated threat beyond what it actually is. Moving on from this, we have environmental mastery, where some people do seem to be able to cope and adapt in all sorts of different situations, be that personal situations, professional situations, completely alien situations, and they seem to cope well with these. There's also resistance to stress, which she originally coined as being integration. A good way of thinking about that is looking at it in terms of the opposite, you know, just would be disintegration. For the layman's terms, somebody falling apart. Now, I think there's a bit of a value judgment there when we look at what happens with people who experience stress, because everybody will experience stress that sometimes they can't cope with. However, we do find that there are many people who seem to do very well with these situations who are more resistant to stress. The next two concepts would be, or criteria, sorry, would be autonomy, somebody who's able to look after themselves, be independent themselves, you know, make their own decisions. And then finally, self-actualization, where people are wanting to live their lives to their fullest potential. Now, those last two can be a bit problematic in terms of um, self-actualization is going to be constrained by people's own socioeconomic background. We can't all become great scientists, we can't all become great uh, composers, but I think the idea is that people are wanting to live towards um, as much of their potential as they possibly can. Self-actualization has another link to humanistic psychology, where my previous podcast we've talked about the positive view of human nature that that gives, and this tendency towards growth that we can see in these ideas of you know people having aspirations for the future, people being optimistic, you know people wanting to do good as well as just feeling good. So moving from there, I want to talk about when the first strands of positive psychology that I'd like to focus on, being this idea of emotional intelligence or emotional awareness. Now, here we have a big problem, I think, with defining emotions. So emotions can be, um, they're very subjective. I personally think it's near impossible for us to get a rational definition of emotions due to their nature, but we do all know them when we see them. In research and literature, 
people talk about different core emotions. I think the lowest I've ever seen is people talk about three of these. Some people talk about five, seven, as much as ten. I'm going to go with um, the idea of there being six of these. This is quite a widely accepted idea. Now, I'm going to outline them in a minute. And then we're going to talk about this idea of positive and negative emotions, which I think can be quite a problematic or a limiting thing for us to look at. And as we go on, we'll see that. But I'm going to list the emotions in alphabetical order, just to try and get away from this positive and negative idea. And then we can discuss what people, or I'll put forward what I suspect many people would think. So their anger, disgust, fear, happiness, sadness and surprise. Now, people will put their own positive and negative labels onto these things, which we'll maybe discuss as we go on. Um, things like anger, disgust and fear, sadness are more likely to be labelled by people as negative. Happiness is more likely to be labelled as people as positive, but I think surprise is a good one for us to take. I mean, surprise can be very positive if you're given a surprise birthday party and you thought everybody's forgotten. Surprise is probably less positive if you find a shark in the swimming pool. But going on, the reason why I'm saying this is for looking at emotional intelligence, it's good to have an idea about these ideas of positive emotions and negative emotions, we'll go for that for a while and we'll look at the benefits of both of them before talking briefly about emotional intelligence a bit more and ways in which we can apply that in our life just in something that could be practical for us. So in terms of these so-called positive emotions, one of the, the benefits is that they can broaden our thinking. Now, Positive emotions can be associated, they, they stimulate areas like the prefrontal cortex, which is associated with short-term memory, but also things like problem solving, creative thinking, forward planning. And then with our long-term memory, and in particular our episodic memory, which is our memory for experiences, which is associated most with the hippocampus. These areas of the brain are often uh, linked. We see this through MRI scans with people who are experiencing or expressing positive emotions. We can contrast this with an area of the brain called the amygdala, which my previous podcasts on localization shows. It's an area of the brain which is more associated with shutting down functions. It's fight or flight. It's about emergency uh, management. So when we experience fear, anger, anxiety, often the amygdala will shut down those areas and try and just get rid of those things in a kind of fight or flight way. But coming back to the main benefit, positive emotions, we have seen that they can broaden our thinking. So we have links there to creativity, which will also link to the so-called negative emotions. Positive emotions can also counteract negative emotions. Now, we can look at this. This isn't going to be, say can. This can be the experience sometimes. It's often, it's difficult for us to experience contrasting emotions at the same time, as in the positive and the negative. We often find the dominant experience will be the one that will come to the fore. Simplistic idea here, but just for giving us some of these benefits is that well, joy can eliminate or alleviate feelings of stress and anxiety, for example. Now, beyond that benefit of counteracting negative emotions, positive emotions can enhance these feelings of resilience, one of the key features of positive psychology that we'll come back to in a later podcast. Now, as we mentioned before, and these strands, these benefits are not exclusive from each other. They work in quite a holistic way. So um, 
positive emotions, with that broadening of thinking, that can definitely help us with our resilience. It promotes what we call problem-focused coping, where people try to look at the source of their stress or their anxiety rather than what we call emotion-focused coping, which is just the short-term thing of trying to avoid or reduce those negative emotions, which is never going to enhance or foster long-term resilience. Positive emotions in terms of resilience can also help us reframe negative events, okay? So the way that we actually encode them in our memory. We can, well, maybe not going to turn it into rose-tinted glasses, but we can try and have a more positive or optimistic take. As we mentioned, one of the subjective strands of positive psychology is, of course, optimism. Third thing here we can look at is that Positive emotions will often enhance our social functioning. So in terms of how we interact with other people, and this can often be in two really key things for um, looking at term, term, times of um, hardship, for our ability to seek social support from others and our ability to offer social support. So summarising there, our positive emotions will broaden our thinking, they can counteract negative emotions, they will enhance our resilience, and they can enhance our social functioning. Now before we turn to these so-called negative emotions as well, one of the things that's been put out in literature about this is a ratio of these positive emotional experiences to negative emotional experiences. It seems to be more beneficial, not surprisingly, for there to be a more positive ratio of the positive to the negative. I've heard different figures for this, but the one that most people seem to accept is that three positive to every one negative uh, emotional experience seems to be a good safeguard against some forms of mental distress or hardship, suffering that we may form. So the, the implicit thing there is that while the positive has to accentuate, the, has to be... Um, predominate over the negative there can actually by implicitly we can look at having that one negative thing there must be something that we can get from that so we'll look briefly at some of these positive um, or sorry these advantages benefits we can get from looking at negative emotions the first one if we assume for the moment or accept that saying anger and fear could be perceived as negative emotions they can be seen as a real driver or a motivation for required changes maybe in someone's own personal outlook someone's lifestyle you know just um, if they're angry at themselves they're angry at a different a situation it can be used as a motivation to go right how can we change this to be a more positive situation Beyond this, but related to it, negative emotions can often promote a self-awareness in us. You know, just they can deepen our personal experience, whether that's been through um, experiences of loss or experiences of frustration that come from these negative emotions. Related to the self-awareness, there are ideas of um, social awareness as well. So when this self-awareness can often lead in us to maybe a sense of empathy, for others, you know, just in a sense of um, maybe care for others about the way that maybe our actions, our emotions have affected them. And this can have a link again, maybe to morality, you know, just this idea about improving things, not just for yourself, but, to, you know, that communitarian level when we look at our three strands. The other link is that these emotions either cathartically um, or as a way of like moving forward with it, they can have links to creativity, people expressing these um, deep levels of um, so-called negative emotions. 
But as we move forward into looking at what emotional intelligence is, I'd like us to try and abandon this idea of positive emotions and negative emotions. When something's labelled as negative, we often want to step away from it. We often want to hide it. And by doing so, we don't do anything to actually deal with it. So emotions are emotions, you know, whether we call them positive, negative, intense or charged, they're emotions, challenging even. So if we can try and drop that positive and negative label just now and look at what emotional intelligence is, emotional intelligence or emotional um, uh, awareness, we could maybe even talk about it as well, you know, just so a way in which we can recognise and manage our emotions, you know, just and those of people uh, closer to um, that are close to us as well. Some researchers have went as far as to say that in terms of emotional intelligence, EQ, and then the intelligence quotient, the um, deeply problematic measure of IQ, that the former emotional intelligence is actually more important, not just for our own personal well-being, but in terms of things like career progression as well. So it's a key thing for us looking at um, in terms of positive psychology. So there are four strands to emotional intelligence that we could focus on just now. The first one is perceiving emotions. So can we identify these emotions in ourselves? Can we identify them in others? Can we even identify them in expressions of emotions such as, you know, um, music, art, literature? Um, when we can do this, I mean, things in ourselves, our tone of voice, the ways we've behaved, our facial expressions, you know, how it feels in our own bodies, how we can recognise it in other bodies. If we can perceive these, they can have a great help in helping us to take perspectives of others, understanding our own perspective, gaining, um, fostering feelings of empathy towards others. So beyond perceiving our emotions, you know, just um, we can go to understanding our emotions, you know, using the links to compound our thinking, to improve our thinking. A key thing for us to look at here is psychology, particularly cognitive psychology, has overstated for, for decades this extent to which we are rational beings. A look at our biological history would suggest that we are probably far more emotional beings than we are rational beings. The areas of our brain associated with emotions have been evolving for hundreds of thousands of years prior to these areas to do with things like the prefrontal cortex and these problem-solving areas of our brain. So being aware of how our emotions affect our thinking, that can be a key thing for us. And it can, it can facilitate our our thinking, you know, just we, we can, if we can label these emotions, and I don't mean by positive or negative, just getting, verbalising them, conceptualising them rather than just feeling them, it can take us away from this reactive way and more towards being proactive, thinking, reflecting before we actually act on things. Ultimately, considering the causes of our emotions and then maybe the effects of our expressions of our emotions as well. This can lead us to what we can maybe look at as an ultimate goal, although, as I've said, these things have to be considered holistically. Um, managing our emotions, looking at best how to express their emotions, or I don't like the idea of controlling our emotions, but having them, reflecting on them so that we have more control over them, stepping away, if you will, from these phrases, right? You made me feel angry, sad, whatever. It made me feel about the situation. And towards I feel, okay? Giving us that sense of personal agency, that sense of personal control that the emotionally intelligent person will have over their behaviour. Again, to repeat, as I said, taking us away from being 
reactive towards being reflective and then hopefully proactive. So it's a little bit of an overview of this first strand of emotional intelligence before we move on in future podcasts to look at other aspects of positive psychology. Just to end though, I thought we'd look at, particularly for times just now, we're in an emotionally charged time at the time of uploading this podcast due to a global pandemic that no one would have envisaged even a few months ago. So there's a lot of emotions that can come with that. I thought it'd be good to end just with a few little tips about things that work well for emotional management. A lot of people will have heard these things before, but it's just a good little way to um, to finish and hopefully just a little takeaway for people. So the first of these we've heard before, I'm sure, about for managing our emotions. Physical exercise can work great. It's been well documented, the positive effects on brain chemistry, you know, feelings of well-being that are associated with our levels of serotonin, feelings of reward that are associated with our levels of dopamine, and then the release of endorphins that can happen through exercise. So this can be a good way of managing our emotions. Putting a bit of cognitive processing in it as well. We're not saying that the cognitive aspects of our brain can be fully neglected. So giving yourself a pep talk, actually going through what has happened, you know, discussing how you've felt rather than what it made you feel. You know, that idea of reflecting on it. Active mood management. So for things like this, we can look at mindfulness exercises. um, Things like progressive muscle relaxation can be a very good aspect of this. Um, Meditation even, listening to or performing music. Social interactions, okay, in the current context, please keep these online perhaps or on the telephone. And then pleasant distractions as well, engaging in hobbies and creativities. So these are things that seem to work well, and I know they're common sense. What seems to work less well and can be very um, tempting because of their short-term nature. So direct stress or tension reduction. This can be things like people using alcohol or sometimes even using recreational drugs. Avoiding the person, you know, just who made you feel in that bad mood. Avoiding that issue, again, short term, and it is not involved in any of this stuff of perceiving our emotions, understanding them, trying to manage them. So passive things, escapism, you know, just things like overeating, watching TV mindlessly, you know, just maybe even just sleeping to avoid stuff. And the third one, I know social distancing comes away from this, but spending time alone, cutting yourself off from people, you know, just now, these are things that in the short term will seem to manage our emotions, but they don't really facilitate in us perceiving these emotions, experiencing them, trying to understand them, trying to use that understanding to think about and manage your emotions. Positive emotions, as they're called, negative emotions, as they're called, are just emotions. They all have to be managed. In managing all of these emotions, we can move ourselves towards these um, feelings of contentment, of well-being, move ourselves away from this kind of disease model about things. They can move us towards these ideas of resilience. Creativity was mentioned with both those positive and negative emotions. That's as much as I want to do for today. As I've said, the podcast is available, so the presentation podcast is available on request. In the coming podcasts, I do want to continue this look at positive psychology, but perhaps look at the different aspects of the rarely unpacked term of well-being and then moving on to uh, resilience as well. But thanks for listening.